Hello and welcome to the Oats for Breakfast podcast. Oats for Breakfast is a podcast affiliated with The Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization in Toronto. I'm your co-host, Asiya. My name is Patrick. Today we're going to be talking to Tanner Merlis about the politics of the alt-right. We also want to talk about an exciting Patreon milestone that we've recently reached. It's $100 a month over Patreon. It's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. So uh, if, if you guys are interested in helping us get to our next milestone, $200, you You'll know what? You'll be duly rewarded for doing so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be nice to get... Um, and Tanner is an associate professor at the University of Ontario, wait. The University of Ontario Institute of Technology. <laughs> University of Ontario Institute of Technology. And uh, he spent the last few years looking at the alt-right and the way that they're developing online and in real life. We're going to be talking about memes, the internet, monk debates, taxation, and so much more. Isn't that right, Asiya? That's right. I think the conversation will be interesting because we do need some kind of insight into why this broader uh, trajectory is taking place. Let's cut to the interview with Tanner and we'll see you on the other side. We're happy to be here today with Tanner Merleys and he's a political economist of digital media technologies and cultural industries. His current research focuses on platform fascism. I'm very grateful for being uh, included in the Oats for Be Breakfast podcast, which is among my new favorite uh, left podcasts. We are the today. best cultural Marxist production out there right now. Um, we we're talking a little bit uh, before recording, uh, Tanner, and I remember you mentioning you had a YouTube party the other day. You were watching alt-right videos, is that right? Yeah, I, I dedicate a large portion of my leisure time when not participating in socialist projects and doing my, my academic research, uh, watching alt-right videos and counting their numbers of shares, likes, and reshares. What did you watch most recently? My most recent sort of watch was yet another piece by a supporter, it would seem, of Steve Bannon, who came out as a former NDP member, a young sort of white male NDP member who since traded in his NDP membership for one of these uh, far-right libertarian free speech absolutist positions, uh, where he was essentially uh, defending Bannon and framing the monk debates as the epitome of intellectual discourse in Canada. Have you ever met any of these guys IRL in real life? I, perhaps I have. Uh, they didn't sort of come out or sort of reveal themselves as card-carrying members of the white <laughs> nationalist alt-right. Um, but uh, I've been to many events and many conferences, and I've also been in many classrooms. And so, so it's sometimes hard to know. What do we really mean by the alt-right? There's disagreements over who's in, who's out, even amongst people who, who claim that, that um, politics for themselves. So what do we mean by it? 
Um, I generally see the alt-right as a euphemism for an old, hateful, white supremacist ideology and movement that's kind of been repackaged as something new. Um, the, the very concept of the alternative right was coined by the prominent white nationalist Richard Spencer back in 2010 when he formed the altright.com website, um, which of course is a magnet for all kinds of xenophobes, bigots, and, and racists. Um, so currently the alt-right bundles together a number of new formations like Identity Europa, Proud Boys, traditionalist workers' parties, and then older white supremacist hate groups like the KKK, Aryan Nations, Adam Waffen, Blood and Honor, and like explicit neo, neo-Nazi groups. Um, so, so very much the alt-right feels to be a new label for an old ideology and phenomenon, at least at the level of political or ideological substance. The way that's presented and packaged is perhaps new. So can you just maybe quickly go through what does the alt-right stand for exactly? I mean, when we're speaking of the alt-right, it's careful not to present it as a political or ideological unity. Um, there's a lot of factional division, sectarianism, um, and, and differences within this like, category of the alt-right. But generally, when I'm speaking about the alt-right, I'm referring to people like Richard Spencer and his National Policy Institute that basically advocate for the protection and promotion of a specious white European culture. And the struggle of the alt-right, from Spencer's point of view, is to essentially build a territorial ethnostate that secures the dominance of white European culture across every institution. Mm -hmm. Um, So they do aspire for state power. Okay, so they want to, basically the alt-right's political project is to make a white... uh, Ethnostate. Ethnostate. And white defined as, like, including Europeans... Americans, Canadians. Yeah, it's kind of like sort of uh, British imperial commonwealth countries, oh, yeah. uh, countries that are part of Western Europe, countries that historically were the, the vanguards of you know imperial capitalist expansion. Um, the idea here, of course, is that non-white peoples weren't part of that project or essential to the growth of the Western empires okay. and the growth of capitalism more generally. So it's convenient to simply kind of exclude them. Um, or to say that they weren't part of that story, which is, is entirely false. Sometimes Spencer speaks of peaceful, uh, peaceful ethnic cleansing, um, where he says that I don't, I'm not a, you know, a neo-Nazi who wants to commit genocide against all non-white, non-European peoples, but what I do want is to remove all people who don't fit into my ethnostate ideal from the United States. I want to send them back to their supposed home countries where the cultures are homogenous and unified. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, rests upon specious notions that cultures are unified within the territorial borders of nation states. So, you know, in Spencer's ideal world, every state has a pure racial ethno people nation mm-hmm. and they should just stay there and not mix or mingle with others beyond those territorial borders. So Patrick is half white and I'm half white. Would we make it into the ethno state? No, you, you, would, you would not be included in Richard Spencer's dream of a white ethno state. Um, actually, you would be seen as the epitome of all that's wrong with a liberal multicultural polity where people from around the world immigrate, mix, mingle, have families, get together, you know, share beds, jobs, movies. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes the, the most pejorative term for this, for the, the fascist alt-right, is mud people. Oh. So people that mix are referred to as mud people by the neo-Nazi movement. In terms of the distinctiveness of the alt-right, uh, not being uh, very well versed in right-wing politics, 
it seems to me, um, at least what's considered distinctive in the mainstream media about the alt-right is this this meme culture and this general internet uh, culture that, that, that surrounds this kind of politics. Would that be an uh, accurate uh, assessment? Yeah, I think there's a few different ways of trying to distinguish the alt-right from, you know, history's white supremacist, fascist, neo-Nazi movements uh, of the past. Um, one might be generational. Um, many of the people that identify themselves as alt-right see themselves as a youthful alternative to the boomer establishment conservatism of the Republican Party and also the boomer neoliberalism of the Democrat Party. Um, so some have really associated this with kind of a millennial youth movement on the, on the far right. That said, um, some have done research that suggests many people on the alt-right are actually just middle-aged, uneducated, working-class white guys. So it's, again, even generationally hard to sort of draw those, 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 those boundaries and sort of determine who's in and who's out. It seems to be across generations, even though the alt-right does get associated with these millennial white nationalists. Um, Another sort of way of distinguishing the alt-right from, from the old sort of white supremacists is, is style or, or aesthetics. Um, they've really tried to distinguish their look and their image from the clan robe-wearing, swastika tattoo-bearing, and skinhead cross-burning, you know, Nazis of America's past. So they're dressing up in business suits. Sometimes they're even adopting a kind of transgressive hipster style this is of like sorts. like Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, so you see Milo dressing really slick one day in kind of a GQ business suit. And then the next day, he'll be sort of looking like a Queen Street hipster. And so they sort of morph, but they're, they're trying to repackage themselves as kind of, you know, either super preppy, almost frat boys, or alternately people that would fit in with kind of a liberal um, creative class milieu that you'd find downtown Toronto. So the looks are, are quite deceiving, and, and they're quite novel as compared to the way that, that history's neo-Nazis and white supremacists look, you know, with big ugly swastikas tattooed on their bald heads and, you know, clan robes and cross-burning, you know, iconography and such. That, of course, th those images um, and symbols still are, are very much part of the alt-right, but they sometimes get, get sort of dressed up or packaged in a kind of new and, and funny guise. So I guess speaking of mobilization online, um, so the left also has tried to, to mobilize and politicize people uh, using online platforms and social media. Why, why haven't we been able to use these platforms as effectively as the alt-right? That's, that's a really good question. I think the question also speaks to the disjunct between many, what many liberals and lefties imagine the internet and social media would do for their politics and for their cause, and actually what uh, was done with those tools for their opponents. There's this idea, especially in the 90s, that you know, the internet, the World Wide Web, would um, allow progressives, you know, ranging from, from liberals to left social democrats to, to socialists, to build their movement, uh, win consent to their cause, uh, speak back to the mainstream media gatekeepers that filter out socialist and Marxist ideas, um, and really move the world in, in a direction um, that they, they wanted. But, but what we learned over the past 10 years is that the, the internet has helped to take the right, not the left, to power. And I agree with Angela Nagel in this assessment. Um, you can sort of you know, see evidence of this by comparing and contrasting the platform presence of someone like Richard Spencer, again, prominent white nationalist, head of the National Policy Institute and founding editor of altright.com, with 
one of my favorite American democratic socialists, Bashkar Sankura, uh, founded the Jacobin, a prominent DSA member, and, and quite an effective platform socialist. So when you go and you just look at their Twitter handles, you look at their Twitter profiles, and you see Spencer has almost 80,000 followers. And Sankara, want to guess? 10,000? I don't, I don't uh, even follow Sankara. More, <laughs> 35,000 or so. Yeah, Patrick's about right. Sankara's got about 39,000. Um, so basically, like, a young American neo-Nazi has almost double the Twitter followers than, you know, a prominent democratic socialist in the United States. So... Most people probably heard that uh, Steve Bannon, uh, the infamous Steve Bannon, was in Toronto. He was in town to debate David Frum, uh, former speechwriter to George Bush II, on the topic of whether the future of Western politics will be populist or liberal, something like that, I believe. Uh, but in terms of having access to this public space, what, was this a concession to alt-right people uh, or was this a way to tell them you know you have a you have a voice in the public was it a bad concession or was it kind of like trying to make a more open space for public debate yeah i mean i actually showed up at the the counter demonstration on on friday night to um use my my right to freely assemble and and speak my political mind um to counter you know, or at least symbolically, uh, you know, speech by someone who symbolizes a movement that I despise. I think that the Overton window of sorts is being shifted to the right by platforming someone like Bannon. What people who attended the debate sort of were saying in response to that position held by many of the demonstrators that showed up on Friday night was that I don't agree with Bannon, but Bannon is a very significant right-wing political consultant, a mover and shaker, somebody who's influenced the Republican Party under Donald Trump, somebody who's consulted with right-wing political leaders and nationalist movements all over the world. I want to hear what Bannon has to say, um, at least so I can understand that and possibly challenge it more effectively. Uh, that was the kind of defense I was sometimes hearing from the people that um, you know, had the privilege to buy a ticket and get a seat at that debate. Yeah, it was like $200 a pop. Yeah, it's like a lot it's of money. Expensive. Um, you know, and, and I say, well, do you really need to pay $200 to see Bannon speak? I mean, Bannon's presence um, is, is, is easy to understand by reading the 1,000 articles about him that have been published online or watching one of his 1,000 videos on YouTube. Um, there's no shortage of coverage about what Bannon is, what he stands for, um, you know, what politics he aligns with. So this idea that we need the monk debates to give us, you know, two hours of, of Bannon debating, you know, from in order to understand Bannon better seems disingenuous to me. But um, Bannon seems to be blowing a lot of dog whistles because he's um, many things to many people, it seems. A lot of the protesters seem to be claiming that he was a Nazi, something he denies. And when you hear him talk in these public forums, whether it was the Monk debate or uh, with The Economist, he claims to be um, a nationalist, and he frames the debate uh, in terms of either nationalist populism or socialist populism. He claims to be much more open to, uh, say, people of different races, not necessarily just white people. A lot of um, non-white people seem to to be of a similar mind uh, as him on, on this topic. 
So there's just a, a flurry of contradictions surrounding him. And, and what what is he? Is he kind of a chameleon? Does he have a real politics? Is there something really there? Or is it just a lot of smoke and mirrors? No, these are this is really, really good. There are contradictions. And I sometimes think these contradictions, um, you know, are, are, are lost on those that are very quick to to turn up and, you know, show Bannon down or, you know, no platform him. Um, you know, for me, attending that demonstration was a larger statement against what Bannon's been associated with. Um, which is the alt-right, which is white nationalism, which is, um, you know, politics I, I detest. But Bannon, I think at the core, is a right-wing political opportunist and entrepreneur who will take money uh, from the highest payer. You have to remember that Bannon, st- Bannon is not a little guy. He dresses, he looks like Michael Moore. The clothes he wears, he's trying to present himself as kind of like the far rights version of a Michael Moore, wearing like kind of these, you know, crummy, you know, jeans and sort of oversized, you know, jacket and such. You know, he's not slick. He's not put together like Frum was at the debate. But you have to remember that Banyan is a multimillionaire. Banyan is bourgeoisie. Banyan is a former Goldman Sachs banker and Hollywood film producer. Banyan founded Breitbart News, a for-profit, you know, media company that, you know, trades and sort of audience attention with a whole bunch of far-right journalists. He's made millions, and he called Breitbart the platform of the alt-right. So since then, ben, Bannon became a high-profile political entrepreneur by selling advice, um, basically advice to right-wing politicians, parties, and movements around the world on how to manipulate a miserated, alienated, and angry working-class white people. He, he was hired by Donald Trump to run Trump's campaign as a right-wing populist. Um, he supported France's National Front, the UK's UKIP, Israel's Likid, Brazil's new president, Bolsonaro. So Bannon has been consulting all over the world, and this is not something you do for free. You do it, you know, in exchange for a handsome paycheck. So, I mean, I think Bannon believes in this sort of new notion of a civic nationalism, as he, as he called it at the Monk debates. But I think if you look at Bannon's history, you know, he's always been on the right, but he's been quite an effective political entrepreneur of the right. Where will he be in 10 years from now? You know, maybe he'll start a video game company. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of... Um get a bit bothered by the, I would say, a bit hyperbolic accusations that Bannon is spewing white supremacy. I don't know what he says in his private life or whatever, but I think in his debate, the debate, for example, I don't think that you could characterize what he was saying as white supremacist at all. And furthermore, I I was kind of troubled by the lack of protest against Frum. But I would think that Frum is actually a worse person, like a worse character and a worse political player than Bannon has been but there was no protest against i mean for example um one way in which which protesters framed bannon was in terms of this uh, originator of the muslim ban meanwhile nobody mentioned that david Frum was among the the those ones pushing for a war in iraq that seems to be a little bit uh, a loss of uh, perspective or, or a loss of memory or something i mean from for me just speaks of sort of uh you know, old news, an ideologue for an essentially broken and delegitimized neoliberal consensus um, that, you know, was carried over from, say, the post-Cold War into perhaps the early years of the war on terror, but completely fell apart during the 2007-2008 world economic slump. I mean, Bannon, unfortunately, spoke more honestly about the antagonism of the present and where we may be going in the future. When Bannon opened the monk debates by saying essentially, the fault lines of contemporary politics are this. You have populist socialism, 
as represented by the uptick in millennials who are indebted, who are propertyless, who are angry. Or you've got the kind of um, ethno-nationalist, civic capitalist populism that me and my team are for. He said, make your choice. Frum did nothing but sort of reproduce cliches about some center that no longer holds. Yeah. These are the fault lines of contemporary politics. You know, at least, you know, Bannon was kind of, you know, honest about that. Frum was absurd. Like, I remember at one point in the debate, he was like, when the midterms come, you know, that working class woman is going to go out or, you know, leave her house and be like, this isn't the America that I want <laughs> and vote against Trump. Yeah, I mean, you have to be completely blind to class inequality yeah. and the divisions that exist in American society to to say such gibberish so confidently. One of the most um, well-worn uh, talking points of the political right over the last 40 years has been the claim, the refrain about uh, small government and, and less taxes. And there's a sense in which some of the rhetoric of the alt-right seems to push against this this uh, small government and less taxes approach. I think Bannon said something at the debate to the effect of um, there should be a 44% tax on people making over 5 million U.S. dollars, which it gives this perception that the uh, recognition almost that we need to have some kind of taxation. What I want to caution about is is with regard to Bannon's rhetoric, you know, around essentially taxing the rich and sort of finding other ways to build public infrastructure, maybe redistribute wealth if we can only get sort of closed down immigration, you know, you shut the borders and such. I think it's really important to note that historically all far-right parties, um, you know, as epitomized by, say, fascist and Nazi Germany, appropriate the language and rhetoric of some facets of the left. And then what they do is they sort of will appeal to the disgruntled, angry, fractured, immiserated working class with these promises of kind of um, economic and social, moral and cultural renew. But it's always premised upon keeping some people out. And whether or not those actual economic promises come true or not, I mean, I don't know what Bannon's intentions are. But I just think it's important at the level of political rhetoric, far-right parties usually do this. So, you know... Bannon's basically, you know, taking from what Sanders and the various left-wing populist movements in the United States were talking about, but then integrating facets of those messages with his own right-wing, you know, political uh, movement. I mean, he he still speaks of saying, you know, I want I want capitalism for the little guy, little guy. I mean, and I can't even imagine what that would look like, given that the United States and very much of the world economy is run by like integrated, massive global corporations. I mean, there's no capitalism for the little guy in the 21st century. Well, I mean, as we've seen with Trump, uh, so far in his presidency, he's followed a pretty standard neoliberal economic platform. So how can we understand the future of the alt-right, given that the austerity conditions that are brought on by Trump's policies and Obama's and all of these previous liberal uh, presidents will continue and get worse? Uh, do you think that they'll lose steam, they'll lose confidence in their project? Or will they become emboldened? Like, how do you think that this will go? What's interesting is that, well, the alt-right came out in full force in support of Trump's presidency, imagining that Trump's promise to make America great again, you know, meant something akin to make America white again, or, you know, would some way move America toward this dream of an ethno state that the alt-right subscribes to. But within about, I'd say, six to eight months of Trump actually taking the White House, the alt-right soon sort of had a falling out with Trump. Trump was doing things that didn't align with what they wanted him to do. 
Trump just is not sufficiently white supremacist or white nationalist for the leaders of the alt-right. And they're very clear about that. What is the left, broadly speaking, supposed to take away from the apparent success of the alt-right? So if the left wants to defeat the alt-right and win people to a better and different future than it extols, we need to stop being so reactive and defensive and start being more proactive and go on the offense. Let's be the ones to set the agenda, what people are thinking about. Let's be the ones to create the frame, how people are thinking about it. Let's push the right into the defensive position so it must respond to us. Mm. We're always reacting. Let's learn how to connect with, engage, guide, organize, and perhaps even lead those people not already immersed in our filter bubbles and echo chambers. Let's be the ones to make better arguments, write resonant stories, run excellent podcasts, produce YouTube channels. Um, Let's win the largest number of people to a vision of society that is better and different than this one. And I think we can call that socialism in the 21st century. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Tanner, for joining us. It was such a delight to have you. had a great time talking to uh, Tanner, who is not only a cultural Marxist, but a very cultured Marxist. I guess that's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, what did you take from the interview, Patrick? I think Tanner is generally right when he says that Bannon, regardless of what we think of his ideas, had the more effective political position given our contemporary circumstances uh, when considered in relation to Frum, who was kind of just recycling tired cliches from the early 2000s. Bannon does sort of speak to the contemporary time a little bit more, and it's important to to recognize that, I think, with all its uh, warts and everything. Yeah, and um, the Bannon and From debate don't only represent, you know, a conversation that's happening that might reflect conditions on the ground. They reflect a debate that's going on at the elite level of society. So, you know, whether the future is going to be populist or liberal is a conversation that the rich and powerful are having amongst themselves. I think if that's a conversation that they're having, it's important that we uh, understand, you know, the debate with clarity as well. I wouldn't say all the people in the, uh, to use the term, uh, ruling class uh, buy into that debate, but it's definitely a debate that's happening within a certain... um, faction of the ruling class probably the debate that's taking place more so within in the canadian context within the conservative party that's right more so than the liberal party and the liberal party my guess would be it's on the the fringes of the party as well so thank you for listening to oats for breakfast we would really appreciate your support over patreon so please go on over to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and help us grow and expand this project patrons support the growth of the podcast and are treated to wonderful side dishes like extended interviews with guests and especially voracious patrons of oats will also be sent more food for thought via snail mail in the form of books written by socialist project members such as Greg Albo and Sam Gindin. Great guys. Very great. Super great. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast and the Socialist Project, you can visit us at socialistproject.ca. And if you like your oats just the way they are, or you wish they were cooked a little longer, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast.socialistproject.ca. Okay, well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.